We are reading today from Philippians chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You have a seat. So a few years ago, uh, I was sitting next to my wife, Kirsten, at a church meeting on a Wednesday night. We were sipping wheat coffee from styrofoam cups, and I was so distracted because her phone just kept on buzzing against the linoleum table in front of us. Her dad was calling her for a third time in a row, and so eventually she grabbed her phone and stepped outside. And he didn't even say hello, just as soon as she picked up, he said, the doctor just left the room, he's not gonna make it. And he couldn't say much after that because he got choked up with tears. Um, Kirsten's brother, Van, he had had some chest pain that he thought was heartburn just a few days prior to that. He ate some spicy food. It wasn't sitting quite right. He hadn't felt right since. And, and that chest pain turned out to be a torn aorta. His primary heart valve was gushing blood internally. So he went to a walk-in clinic looking for an antacid and instead was rushed directly to the hospital for urgent and immediate open heart surgery. And a few days after that surgery, the, the lead surgeon had come into the room and broken the news to the family. He's not going to make it. So we left that church thing right away and got the very next flight out of town that we could. And by the time we made it to the hospital in Nashville, they had some more information that Van, her brother, was scheduled now for a second open heart surgery. This surgery has a better chance of killing him than it does of saving him, but it's literally the only option left. And so they're throwing up this Hail Mary. So I prayed. I sat at the foot of this bed of this guy who's in his early 30s, someone that I'm supposed to grow old going to holidays next to and that sort of thing. And now I'm told that I'm supposed to say goodbye to him for good. And all I could do is bury my head in my hands and plead for help. Bring all the desperation and fear that I felt, all the hope that I could muster and talk to God about it. I, I prayed. And that response is not unique. Prayer is the global language. Already today, before any of us showed up here, Catholics have recited the poetic prayers of historic saints, and Muslims have spread out their rugs and bowed their heads all the way to the ground facing Mecca and prayed to Allah in unison. Jews have written pleas to Yahweh and then rolled them up in tiny uh, little cylinders and wedged them into Jerusalem's wailing wall. Buddhists have meditatively emptied themselves searching for the enlightened state of self-forgetfulness. Tibetan monks have spun a wheel that has wadded up journaled prayers on it like a game of divine roulette believing that it sends those prayers up to God. And somewhere, a staunch convinced atheist has buried his head in his hands in a hospital waiting room pleading for help from a God he doesn't even believe is there to listen. And all of that was just today, before any one of us showed up here. 
One out of six people on the globe today prays to Allah five times a day. There are whole communities of Hasidic Jews that still order their lives around gathering three times a day together at the temple to pray. And 25% of the global population prays the Lord's Prayer on Easter Sunday alone. Prayer is also the ancient language. There are cave paintings that have been discovered in modern Indonesia and France that have been dated back by archaeologists more than 35,000 years. Those paintings appear to scientists who generally believe prayer to be a waste of time to be prayers. In Turkey, a praying temple has been discovered that dates 6,000 years before Stonehenge, a place of prayer that dates 3,000 years before Jesus. Prayer is also the modern language. The fact that you are sitting in a sacred building on a Sunday morning makes you a sociological anomaly. Church attendance is declining in every statistical measure everywhere in the Western world. But in spite of that, prayer isn't going anywhere in the Western world. According to Gallup research, this week more Americans will pray than will exercise, drive a car, have sex, or go to work. Nine out of ten Americans pray regularly. Three out of four pray every day. In Western uh, Europe, which is considered to be one of the most secularized parts of the globe, 25% of the people who bubble in non-religious on uh, their national surveys also bubble in that they take part in some religious activity each week or each month, typically prayer. And Bruce Springsteen, in the twilight of a career as a tried and true rock star, released a two and a half hour concert on Netflix in which the boss ends by praying our Father in heaven hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, right off the lips of Jesus over the adoring crowd. Any way you measure it, prayer is bigger than the church, and it's not even close. People who don't want your preaching will take your prayer. People who don't care anything for your God will risk a word or two in prayer. In the confusing space between faith and doubt, prayer is the language that still speaks. Primitive peoples and enlightened Westerners, African tribes and American suburbs, touring musicians and stay-at-home moms, atheists and creationists, they're all praying. Everybody prays. Everybody always has. And there's no end in sight. So there I am, sitting in this hospital room, head buried in my hands in that ultimate act of desperation and mystery and hope called prayer. That's the beginning of the story. Here's the end. Two days later, Van woke up in a hospital room after a successful surgery. The lead surgeon came into the recovery room and he wept telling me and the rest of the family about a moment in the surgery when the surgical team gave up and declared Van deceased. And then a nursing student whose only job was to hand the surgeons the scissors and watch how they worked, began to pray aloud for Van in that hospital room. And immediately when that happened, the surgeon who had been searching for the, the, the tear that he could not find for five hours immediately found it, was able to stitch it up, and Van survived. Miraculous. That is not my word. That is what the non-praying, non-believing doctor called it with tear tracks staining his cheeks. And you're thinking, of course that's the end of the story. This is the beginning of a series of sermons about prayer. I'm not convinced, or I'm, or I'm not impressed that you picked out one of the times when it actually worked. 
Because for anyone who's ever prayed with the sort of desperation that I prayed for in my brother-in-law's hospital room, uh, you're already distracted by your own version of that very same story. And maybe yours doesn't have a fairy tale ending. Maybe it seemed like it would until it suddenly finally didn't. Or maybe it did. But why did God answer your prayers and so many other stories like that end in suffering? See, I'm not primarily interested in the beginning or even the end of the story when it comes to prayer. What I'm interested in is the middle. Because the middle is where the mystery lies. It is where all of our questions about prayer are littered. Is prayer really necessary? I mean, if God is sovereign, he accomplishes what he wants when he wants, right? So then why does he need me to ask him? Is it God's will to answer every prayer or are there other factors involved? Why does God sometimes seem to answer some of our prayers but only after a long, long period of asking? I mean, if the answer was yes, why did he make me sweat it out? Or or is there some sort of divine equation between time spent praying plus number of people praying plus method of prayer that finally gets God's attention and I just happen to crack the code? Why doesn't God answer my prayers for my lost friends and family? I mean, here's what I know. He he wants to redeem the world, he wants to answer prayer, and he wants relationship with every person. If all those boxes are checked, why isn't it working? I know that we have a spiritual enemy, but if Jesus defeated Satan, then is there any real opposition left uh, to interfere with my prayers? At the end of the day, what is actually happening in the middle? What is actually happening when I pray? Is anything happening because I pray that wouldn't have happened if I didn't? Or is anything not happening because I pray that was bound to happen otherwise? The question that I'm circling around is this one. Do my prayers actually matter? Do they matter to God and do they matter in the world? That is the middle of every story about prayer, littered with all of our questions, doubts, hesitations, and fears. Philip Yancey writes, most of my struggles in the Christian life circle around the same two themes. Why God doesn't act the way I want God to and why I don't act the way God wants me to. Prayer is the precise point where those two themes converge. It's why when Jesus' disciples mustered up the courage to just ask him point blank, they weren't interested in how to heal or teach the masses or give sight to the blind. Here's what they wanted to know. Teach us to pray. So we're going to spend the next 10 weeks on the mystery and invitation of prayer. The, the title for this teaching series and practice is taking, taken directly off the mouths of Jesus' disciples, teach us to pray. And this is going to be an introduction. We're going to barely scratch the surface, but it will be plenty for one day. Here's the big idea for today. Pray as you can. Hopefully that will make more sense in just a few minutes. I want to start with some of the most concise, straightforward prayer instructions that you'll find anywhere in the scriptures. So if you would, hold your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 4, where Stephanie read for us just a moment ago. That's going to be our grounding passage for today. I'm going to go a few other places, but everywhere else I go is going to be on the screen. But we're going to return again and again to Philippians chapter 4. So if you would follow along with me there, I think you'd find it helpful. I'll begin reading now in verse 5. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, one of the more frustrating things about Scripture, at least to me, is that it rarely reads like Ikea instructions. 
You know, if God would just lay it out step by step, then I'd do it. But for some reason, he is so insistent on talking to us in stories and riddles. But this passage is proof that it's not that simple. Because here it is, laid out step by step, but we don't follow it. Not generally, at least. Do not be anxious about anything. Pray about everything. We don't buy it. Here's how I know. I've had plenty of conversations with anxious people. Anxiety is the soundtrack humming beneath modern life. And so as a pastor, I have plenty of conversations with people about the stubborn, unshakable sense of anxiety, but I have much, much fewer conversations about the transcendent peace promised through prayer. And I also know because I'm more familiar with anxiety than peace. I am more well acquainted with the subconscious drive to control the circumstances overwhelming me than I am of the unburdening freedom that's promised in prayer. So I'm not a master counselor on the other side of this thing offering advice. I'm right in the thick of the mess with you. God promises peace, a supernatural sort of peace that we can't even logically reason out in place of crippling anxiety. And here's how we make the exchange, pray. But we don't. So why not? Why don't we pray? Why don't we take up such a straightforward invitation? Well, obviously there's the surface reasons, like you're busy and you're social and you're at least trying to be successful and all of those things take quite a lot of time. And then there's also this, in June of 2007, Apple released the first iPhone and since then everyone who can afford it has spent most of their time scrolling through Instagram or, or taking selfies or getting into political arguments with total strangers. So you're busy and you're distracted. But still, you find uh, time to eat and sleep and maybe even exercise with some consistency and all of those things take significantly more time than prayer does. So even in a busy and very distracted world, people still make time for what really matters to them. So there must be something deeper, something beneath the surface that keeps us from praying. And I believe it's this, that for most of us, prayer does not relieve our anxiety. Actually, prayer gives rise to a different set of anxieties. Prayer itself makes us anxious because it uncovers fears that we can ignore so long as we never engage conversationally with God. And I wanna name those fears. Here's the first one, the fear of being naive. With the backdrop of a post-enlightenment, fiercely logical, emotionally cold, highly intellectual city like Portland, there is no greater sin than being naive. There is nothing less fashionable in Portland than a wide-eyed state school grad fresh off the plane from a Midwestern suburb in the big city, right? <laughs> Everything that we interact with in the city, we have the potential of mastering, and we must master it quickly in order to survive socially in an environment like this. We've gotta master the most efficient route between home and the office, and how to move up the ranks at work, and how to use chopsticks without looking stupid, and how to cut lanes on your bike and live to tell the tale. And if we can't master it, then we can always just avoid it. I'm just gonna change industries and avoid chopsticks and, and take an Uber instead. But prayer can't be mastered. Prayer always means submission. It means to permanently put yourself in the underneath position. With prayer, there is no climb. There is no control. There is only humility and hope. And so to pray is to risk being naive. It is to risk believing, to risk playing the fool, to risk trusting someone or something enough that they can let you down. And in every other environment, we're trained to avoid that. So we tend to avoid prayer. Secondly, there's the fear of silence. 
I'm pretty comfortable with the spirituality that I've got. And if I pray, then if I really live like everything Jesus says about prayer is true, what happens if all I get back is silence? Dallas Willard writes, silence is frightening because it strips us as nothing else does, throwing us on the stark realities of our life and in the quiet, what if it turns out there is very little between us and God? What if I were to actually strip away all the music and the community and the sermon, if I stripped away all the noise that surrounds the spirituality that I've gotten comfortable with and I'm left with just me and God and then find out that there's actually not that much to just me and God. And we've got an entire teaching series coming up next that is dedicated to suffering and unanswered prayer. So for today, I wanna leave it at this. Prayer means the risk of facing silence where we've grown addicted to noise. It is the risk of facing the God that we've mastered talking about, singing about, reading about, and learning about. It means risking real interaction with that God. And the longer we've gotten used to the noise around God, the higher the stakes are. What if it's awkward or disappointing or boring or what if he stands me up altogether? When you've got that much to lose, prayer might be scarier than avoiding ever being alone with God. And then there's the fear of selfish motives. <clears throat> we are paralyzed by self-evaluation. Uh, let's just say hypothetically that your roommate doesn't know Jesus. Well, before uttering a word in prayer for her, you are paralyzed by a question that then spirals inward. Why do I really want my roommate to find God? Is it because of a pure desire for her to be met by a divine love that makes her whole? Or do I find comfort in someone else coming to the same conclusion I've made, like some sort of spiritual no one likes to drink alone sort of thing? Like if all of this turns out to just be one big hoax that makes life bearable, maybe they'll laugh at us one day and not just me. Or do I think that I've got all of the answers and the world would be better if everyone thought like me and behaved like me and believed like me? Am I just cloaking narcissism and faux compassion? Or do I carry around some sort of religious guilt from my conservative grandma that she drilled into me as a kid? And so now I pray for my roommate, but it's really just to make me feel okay about myself. Like if I say this prayer for her, it means that I'm not completely selfish all the time, and that feels better. See, we know all too well the cacophony of motives that lives within every one of us, forever swirling around. And so when we pray, we become aware of those motives. It draws them up to the surface. And many of our prayer lives are then paralyzed by the self-evaluation that that presents us with. And then finally, there's the fear of doing it wrong. I don't know how. I listen to everyone else pray, and it makes me feel like I'm following Winston Churchill in high school speech class. I'm not that eloquent, I'm not that confident, I'm not that comfortable. I hear other people pray out loud and then it only furthers that insecurity. So many Christians sit for years in a pew and hear prayers prayed by professional Christians in words they never use in actual conversation and then just assume that they don't know how to pray. And so I don't pray that much, not yet anyway. Maybe one day I'll learn the lingo. See, Scripture teaches, don't be anxious, just pray. And maybe we don't, because prayer actually comes with plenty of reasons to be anxious. And this is why I find comfort in the words of one of the great champions of prayer, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who says, of all the activities in which a Christian engages and in which, are part, in which are part of the Christian life, there are surely none which causes so much perplexity 
and raises so many problems as the activity we call prayer. So then if all that is true, why would we pray? I wanna make our way back through that very same list of fears and offer responses. So first, pray because we're overwhelmed. The great social sin of the modern world's naivete, belief is out, cynicism is in. Where did that modern phenomenon come from? Well, historically, the Enlightenment put forth the myth of human progress that uh, assumed that with the passing of time, the world was steadily improving, people are becoming more whole, the world is becoming a better uh, place. That assumption, which served as the backbone of the developing modern Western world, was then deflated by two world wars and the bloodiest and most barbaric century in recorded history. So disillusioning. The balloon was popped on the optimism of human progress, leading to an equally widespread uh, sweep of disillusionment. You and I, then, have been groomed in a post-enlightenment story of deconstruction that doesn't trust God anymore, but has plenty of reasons not to trust people either. The result is multiple generations of people pretending that they don't need either one. I can trust myself, guide myself, be enough for myself. And you know a tree by its fruit, right? So what is the fruit of that story in the life of a modern person? We're overwhelmed. Everyone I know is drowning in their thing. And it does not matter if your thing is creating art or knowing the right people or profit margins or whining and dining clients or raising children. We can't see past our thing because our thing is so all-consuming. So we've avoided becoming naive, but we've often done it in the name of becoming overwhelmed. The story that was supposed to free me is in fact just trading jail cells. And if the story that you thought would free you is trapping you, the logical thing to do is look beyond it. But instead, even within the church, we exchange overwhelmed lives. We don't exchange overwhelmed lives for transcendent peace. We just drag God down into our overwhelmed lives. And the only way that we can make him fit is to shrink him down to our size. And so we keep on praying, but we lower the bar on the expectation and power of prayer from where Jesus set it to where we set it. We kick like mad to keep our head above the water of our overwhelmed lives, and then we talk to God like he's powerless to do most anything about it except give me a positive outlook to make it through another day. We dwindle God down to a divine being who's just as overwhelmed and just as powerless as we are, and our prayers to that God are understandably vague, infrequent, and done with a calculated amount of hope. Constantly overwhelmed lives should drive us to true prayer in its rawest form, but the tendency instead is to pray safe, calculated prayers, insulating us from both disappointment and freedom. Then there's, uh, I would say this, pray because trust comes before faith. See, we fear silence, but the thing that calms that fear isn't faith, it's trust. And there's a difference. Faith is the assurance of what you hope for. Trust is confidence in the character of God. See, before we can have faith that God will answer, we simply have to trust the character of the God that we're, we're talking to. And in my experience, trying to will faith into the equation doesn't make the possibility of silence any less scary, but trusting the character of the listener does. Trust allows us to say, I don't understand what God is doing right now, but I trust that God is good. Well, but, but what if I pray and the cancer doesn't disappear? 
or if I don't get the job, or if she doesn't come back, or if he's still addicted, without trust, we suppress the disappointment that God's silence leaves with us. We build a wall to protect ourselves from the God that we pray to. We carefully nuance our prayers, guarding ourselves against a God who might disappoint us a second time over. But with trust, we can come to the God that we know and say with brutal honesty to that God, what were you thinking? And where were you? See, the Bible never promises that we won't sometimes feel like we're alone wandering in the desert, but it does promise this. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And if you trust the character of the God that you're praying to, you can drag your feet through the desert. Jesus does not reveal to us a God we can perfectly understand, but he does reveal a God that we can perfectly trust. Trust is the certainty that the listening God hears and that he cares. And I trust the God who, even when he does not remove suffering from my life, wears suffering alongside me. Trusting the God revealed in Jesus means this. It means silence is for real, but it is not forever. Then pray because complaints are welcome. God's not nearly as worried about your motives as you are. I can prove it. Here's a few of the prayers that made the cut as part of the inspired, inerrant, canonical scriptures. May burning coals fall on them. May they be thrown into the fire, into miry pits, never to rise. That's Psalm 140. Here's Psalm 69. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Let's do another one. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell him my trouble. Yikes, anger, depression, entitlement. Whoever wrote these needs to see a professional. David, that's who wrote those. You probably remember David, Israel's most famous figure, the, the king who became an unreachable bar for all the subsequent kings, the man after God's own heart, the one whose bloodline was promised to lead to the Messiah. He's the psychotic nightmare behind all of those prayers. And they were collected into the Psalms and have framed Christian worship and prayer since the church's inception. Those prayers sit right alongside some of, alongside some of David's more well-known poetry. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in greed pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters, he refreshes my soul. Well apparently he, al he wasn't always feeling that serene because he also prayed, may burning coals fall on them. Or praise the Lord my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. He goes on to pray, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles in Psalm 103. Oh, oh, apparently though, he wasn't always feeling as if God was the wind beneath his easily spreading wings because he also prayed, I'm worn out calling for help. Now I could keep going, but I think you get it. The Psalms revealed a garden variety of motives. Some words in the Psalms go directly against the teachings of Jesus and the character of God revealed in Scripture, meaning that some of the Psalms are technically speaking heretical. So why on earth would those prayers get included in the Bible? Because they're honest. That's what makes them exemplary, that they're honest. God is looking for relationship, not, from, not for well-prepared speeches spoken from perfect motives. 
God listened to overreacting rage, dramatic despair, and borderline naive joy, and then called David a man after his own heart. When it comes to prayer, God's not grading essays. He's talking to children. And so if God can delight in prayers as dysfunctional as the ones we find wedged right into the middle of our Bibles, then he can certainly handle yours and mine without us cleaning them up first. If the Bible tells us anything about prayer, it tells us this, that God much prefers the rough draft full of typos and rants than the polished, edited version. C.S. Lewis said, lay before him what is in us, not what ought be in us. The way that you change your motives is not to sort them out in silence and then bring it to God. It is to bring what's really in you to God and let him sort your motives from the inside out. So complaints are welcome. And then finally, pray because the only way to get it wrong is by trying to get it right. Personally, I find it so helpful that when Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, wedged right in between cosmic phrases like kingdom come and deliver us from evil, he adds, give us today our daily bread. What a simple request. Bring your felt needs to God, the needs of today, and talk to him about them. How do I pray? You talk to God about what's on your mind. That's it. You talk to God like you talk to a friend. You vent and you laugh and you ask and you listen and you unload, you just talk. You don't try to sound more pure or spiritual than you are. Prayer's not a speech, it's a conversation. Roberta Bondi says, if you are praying, you are already doing it right. So here's the truth about prayer and the foundation that we can stand on for the weeks to come. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That sounds like it's written by someone who's never been anxious. Someone who's never really been through what I've been through. It sounds like religious well-wishing. It's not that simple. If it's that simple, why doesn't it seem to work that simply? Well, I skipped a part. Did you notice that? See, every time I hear this passage reference, it always starts with human need. Do not be anxious about anything. But that's not where the passage starts. It does not begin with need, it begins with promise. It starts here, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. And the deep fear that robs our prayers of power is the Lord isn't near. It's the lie that God has forgotten me, that I'm actually not in good hands, that my future is not secure. It's the worry that at the end of the day, this God, near or far, can't be trusted, that he's something less than who he promises to be, and that when it really comes down to it, I'm out here on my own. All four gospel authors remind us of Jesus flipping over the uh, tables of the money changers in the temple in a holy tantrum. They all remember that moment when he prophetically scrubbed clean the corrupted temple of all the corruption that had stained the house of prayer. And in the midst of that rampage, this rabbi gone mad said through panted breaths, stop turning my father's house into a market. Now that's significant because we're not talking about a a composed, well-prepared moment of teaching. I'm talking about in the throes of righteous anger when Jesus is speaking from the gut and not from the head, he referred to the temple as my father's house. 
And in first century Israel, the temple was the most revered building on earth. The Jewish people believed it was literally the house of Yahweh, the place where God's presence dwelt, the house God took up residence in. There were cleansing rituals required just to cross the threshold. There were qualifications related to how close you could get to the center. Even the majority of the priests could not enter the innermost room because it was believed that the temple was the presence of God. And Jesus is calling that same place home. My father's house. In the presence of a God that even made the priests tense up, Jesus feels at home. Nancy Mayer says, who one believes God to be is most accurately revealed, not in any credo, but in the way one speaks to God when no one else is listening. So when you utter the words, dear God, what is the expression on the divine face that you're interacting with? What are the thoughts running through that God's mind? What's his mood? Dear God, so sorry to bother you, Dear God, I know you're really busy, but dear God, I know I haven't stopped by in a while. My father's house. That's a profoundly different starting place. The one assurance that fills our prayers with power and with faith is this, the Lord is near. Pete Gregg says it this way, the most important discovery you will ever make is the love the Father has for you. Your power in prayer will flow from the certainty that the one who made you likes you. He is not scowling at you, he is on your side. Unless our mission and our acts of mercy, our intercession, petition, confession, and spiritual warfare begin and end in the knowledge of the Father's love, we will act in prayer out of desperation, determination, and duty instead of revelation, expectation, and joy. The love of the Father, the most dis important discovery you will ever make is just that. It's a discovery. It cannot be taught. It can only be discovered. And prayer is the place of that discovery and everything else flows from it. I know that the moon orbits the earth at around 200,000 miles away. That it's more than just a light, but it's a, a dusty surface that you can actually set your feet down on. That the climate there is something around negative 400 degrees Fahrenheit. I know all of that. But Neil Armstrong discovered it. He traveled all of those miles. He put his feet and walked around on that round glowing nightlight. And he felt that cutting breeze. See, knowledge is hearsay, it's memorizing facts. Discovery requires personal experience. You can read the menu description of every entree at your favorite restaurant. You can go and sit down and even ask the server to eloquently describe the few that pique your interest. You can watch the plates coming out from the kitchen and notice the, the reaction of every restaurant patron as they take their first bite. None of that will satisfy your hunger. You gotta pick up a fork and a knife for that part. You can watch every rom-com that's ever been produced. You can read all the classic romance novels. You can eavesdrop on the first date at the cafe table next to you and show up at weddings and watch people make lifelong vows in front of friends and family. You can interview an old couple on their 50th wedding anniversary who's lived those vows out day in and day out, hand in hand, but all of that is to merely know about love. 
To discover love requires that you feel the first date butterflies yourself, that you make lifelong promises in front of friends and family and feel the weight of those vows, that you actually live those promises out then in the day in, day out, ups and downs of 50 years and and come to that place holding the same person's hand. You see, all of that requires discovery. True love requires discovery. And when it comes to prayer, you can read all the classics, you can study the revival stories, you can treasure up the rich biblical insights. You can memorize the facts or you could just live in daily relationship with God through prayer. You could insist on processing all of the extraordinary and the devastating and the mundanity that lies in between with the eagerly listening Father and guess which method is more effective. See, prayer is learned by discovery. And so here is ground zero for our next couple months together as a church. Prayer is more practice than theory. Jesus was once asked, teach us to pray, and he answered, by praying. Richard Foster says, by praying, we learn to pray. Philip Yancey once wrote, we learn to pray by praying. Mother Teresa was once asked, how do we learn to pray? And she answered, by praying. Tyler Staten is saying today, this teaching series won't do you any good if it stops at teaching, because prayer is more practice than theory. But I like the way Don John Chapman said it best, pray as you can, not as you can't. And so I wanna challenge you, before you leave this room today, to make a commitment to pray as you can over the next 10 weeks. That's now until March the 1st. Pray as you can, what do I mean? I mean, if you can't pray for an hour, if you've never done that before, do not try it. It will feel like forever. Pray for a minute. Pray as you can. And if you zone out every time you pray at home, cool, pray while you're walking down the sidewalk. Pray as you can. If you can't pray adoration, then don't fake it. Pray your complaints, your anger, and your confusion. If you can't concentrate to pray out loud, then journal your prayers with paper and pen. If you can't pray with hope and with faith, God's not bothered by that. He wants you to tell him about your doubts and disappointment. Pray as you can. Before you leave this room today, make a commitment to pray as you can. A commitment to put your phone on the other side of the room so that when your alarm goes off, instead of hitting the snooze in the morning, you spend the first 20 minutes of the day in conversation to God and see what he can do with that. Or put on instrumental music on your commute home from work every day and begin to process the events of the day in conversation with God. Or get together with friends for an hour before the worship gathering and begin to pray and see how that might shift and change your worship experience when you come in with a heart of expectation. Or just speak a sentence or two to God every day on your walk from your front door to the bus stop. Pray as you can. And if you're more comfortable with cynicism than you are with innocence, if you're unsure about your motives, afraid of silence, and pretty confident you aren't doing it right, you are in the perfect starting place. Pray as you can, and somewhere along the way, you will make the most important discovery of your life, the love the Father has for you. That discovery is God's end of the deal. Your part is just to show up honestly. The one non-negotiable rule when it comes to prayer is to show up and keep showing up with brutal honesty. And that invitation is for everybody. If you have never uttered a word in prayer, you should know that it took one humble request from a career thief for someone crucified next to Jesus to find himself living forever in paradise with him. 
And if prayer for you is a source of a deep wound or disappointment, remember that when trust is broken in relationship, it does not get healed by maintaining distance. It gets healed by re-engaging that relationship. Healing requires re-engaging, and I will not pretend that it is easy, but it is the place of healing. And I was actually thinking just this morning of a, a TV series that I watched uh, a few years ago called Escape from Donna Mora. Uh, about a prison break that happened in New York State, actually in the last decade, I think. But the way that it happened is one prisoner crawled through the ducts of this prison and went down and stood next to this concrete wall in the sewage pipes or something like that in a prison with a tiny little hammer that he had snuck in and just every night while everyone else slept, just banged and banged and banged against this wall. And almost every night there was no discernible difference he had made in the wall, but he did that for months and months and months until he had torn a hole in it and walked out to freedom. And I just have this sense that there's some among us who have built walls of disappointment in our relationship with God, and so we have a manageable faith of our own construction, but the truth is that we are imprisoned by the spirituality of our own making. And prayer is not dynamite, it's a tiny hammer. And the journey that you're being invited to is not one of instant breakthrough, it is one of going into the secret place with God night after night after night and just banging and banging and banging and seeing no difference most of the time. But the result of pursuing him in the secret place will be breakthrough and freedom. You may not get it all at once, but it will be breakthrough and freedom from the cage of spirituality that you've constructed for yourself. And then finally, if you're years into a life of mature prayer, and you're beginning to wonder if there's anything left to discover, I just wanna remind you that you're going to spend eternity in the presence of God and never reach the end of him. Never lose a sense of wonder at his goodness, never grow bored of his presence, never have him all figured out. There is an infinitum of discovery in this invitation we call prayer. So pray as you can. That's an invitation for everybody, the rookies, the jaded, the faithful, and everyone in between. So why don't we stand, we're gonna respond together. But to guide us into response, I wanna read over us a prayer. It's a prayer written as a poem by a poet named Ted Loder, and it's one that's guided me into prayer many times before, and so I wanna offer it now to guide us into prayer. So will you pray this with me? Not aloud, let me pray this over you. Holy one, There is something I wanted to tell you, but there have been errands to run, bills to pay, arrangements to make, meetings to attend, friends to entertain, washing to do, and I forget what it is I wanted to say to you. And mostly I forget what I'm about or why. Oh God, don't forget me, please, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Eternal one, there's something I wanted to tell you But my mind races with worrying and watching, with weighing and planning, with rutted slights and pothole grievances, with leaky dreams and leaky plumbing and leaky relationships that I keep trying to plug plug up and my attention is preoccupied with loneliness, with doubt, with things I covet. And I forget what it is I wanted to say to you and how to say it honestly or how to do much of anything. Oh God, don't forget me, please 
for the sake of Jesus Christ. Almighty one, there's something I wanted to ask you, but I stumble along the edge of a nameless rage haunted by a hundred floating fears of war, of losing my job, of failing, of getting sick and old, having loved ones die, of dying. And I forget the real, what the real question is I wanted to ask, and I forget to listen because you seem so unreal and far away, and I forget what it is I have forgotten. Oh God, don't forget me, please, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Oh Father in heaven, perhaps you've already heard what I wanted to tell you. What I wanted to ask in my blundering way is don't give up on me. Don't become too sad about me, but laugh with me and try again with me, and I will with you too. Oh, Father in heaven, perhaps you've already heard what I wanted to tell you. What I wanted to ask is forgive me, heal me, increase my courage, please. Renew in me a little of love and faith and a sense of confidence and a vision of what it might mean to live as though you were real and I mattered and everyone was sister and brother. What I wanted to ask is for peace enough to want to work for more for joy enough to share, and for awareness that is keen enough to sense your presence here, now, there, then, always. Amen.